You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is a place where I have the opportunity to talk to diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Bense Nene. Bense is professor of philosophy and BOF research professor at the University of Antwerp. His research interests are in aesthetics and philosophy of mind. His books include Between Perception and Action and Aesthetics, a very short introduction. He is currently writing books on the fragmented mind and mental imagery. In this episode, we talk about polarization, temptation, the fragmented mind, films, and so much more. Hello, Bense, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me here. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so I'm... uh... It's great to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. So how did you get interested in philosophy? So that's a question that um, that we all are supposed to have a, like a nice uh, zinger <laughs> answer for. Um, I, I don't really have a, have a zinger. So the, the thing is that I'm not um, not as enthusiastic about philosophy as some, some of my colleagues or, or other. I, I don't <laughs> okay. think that that's like, that's the, I don't have this kind of falling in love uh, backstory that, you know, mm-hmm. I just walked into this one class and that was, uh, you know, transformational. I, I, I just don't have that. I think of philosophy as the kind of uh, the least bad way of answering questions that I want. To... <laughs> the least bad? Yeah, right. So I, so, so here's the thing. So I'm, I'm interested in touchy-feely questions, but I'm also, I, I like to have a, like a very precise way of tackling touchy-feely questions. And I guess philosophy comes the closest to, to doing that. There's a lot of okay. disciplines that talk about touchy-feely questions, but not in a precise way. So I don't want those. And there's a lot of disciplines that do precise talk, but not in a touchy-feely way. Not, not, not about mm-hmm. touchy-feely questions. So I, I don't want those either. So philosophy is kind of in the middle, doing approximately the thing I wanted to do. But I'm not, so I don't, I don't, I don't um, I'm, not, I'm not the most enthusiastic about our discipline for various reasons. Are you enthusiastic? So it's, it seems as if one might say that you kind of work on the border of some, you know, kind of intersectional disciplines. Are you are you are you enthusiastic about, about about any discipline, or is it simply the touchy feeling questions as you describe it that's that's most interesting to you? I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't think that disciplines are the kind of thing that one, or at least I, I can be enthusiastic about. I'm I really am enthusiastic about certain questions or certain topics, and some of those happen to be at least partially in philosophy. So, and in that sense, I am yeah, I'm very happy to be a philosopher or partly a philosopher. But very often, many of the questions that I'm interested in, um, the answers are not really there in philosophy, but but in psychology or in neuroscience. And then I'm just leaving philosophy and going to those disciplines and trying to answer them there. So I don't, I don't have, I don't feel that I have to, you know, that that I. It's not really part of my identity that I'm a philosopher. Right. It's not, it's not how I can think of myself. There are a lot of things I want to talk to you about <laughs> in this interview, and so you, you hinted on psychology. So, so I think I think it's it, it's important for us to kind of start off with what a psychological sorts kinds of kind of question, and I think that's going to lead us to some some other topics such as temptation, more on an interpersonal level, but also polarization. 
right? So uh, I want to I start off with, with asking you a touchy-feely question, and it's, it's the following. What does defragmenting our minds involve? Why do you think it's important? And what are some ways we can do it? So those, those, that's, that's just one big question under three umbrellas I can always remind you of, of either. Um, but I, I think this is important to the direction of, of where we want to go. So I think it's important for us to start here. But what, what is defragmenting our minds? What is that all about? Why is it important? And, and how can we do it? Great. So, uh, so that's exactly the question that I'm asking in this book that I'm, I'm trying to write. It's uh... It's for wider audiences, uh, which, which is a process that you you know more about than I do at this point, and uh, and so it's a it's a learning uh, process for me. But the general idea is this: uh, the human mind can be more or less fragmented, which means exactly what it sounds like. It means it can be uh, it can have more of a unity to it, or it can have it can be more um, it can consist of more kind of kind of detached parts that are uh, that are kind of. Um, where information does not kind of flow freely from one to the other, but uh, but informations are kept separate from my mind. And I think that this, whether your mind is fragmented or not, has huge implications for basically any every aspect of your everyday life and your and your psychology. So let me give you an example for what for kind of a harmless way in which the human mind can be fragmented. You know, okay. double booking. That's a kind of uh, that's something that we right, all know right. about, you know, and tomorrow I have to go to the dentist, but I also have a departmental meeting and somehow I know both of those things, right? But I but I don't connect them. So that's a kind of a harmless way in which the mind can be fragmented. That's not really the kind of fragmentation that I that I have in mind, or that, that I think has these kind of big big huge implications for for our lives. Rather, there are certain things that we do that we're not proud of. What do we do with them? We can't just forget them. Uh, and then I think that what the human, what the kind of human psychological immune system does is to kind of in- exile those pieces of information in faraway fragments. But then it's one thing to, to, to exile them in faraway fragments of the mind, and it's another one to keep them there so that it doesn't come back to haunt you. And, um, and the, 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 whole, the main point here, or the kind of the punchline, is that keeping this information, this kind of... Uh, unfortunate pieces of information away from the kind of the center of the mind and in these faraway fragments takes a lot of uh, energy, takes a lot of attentional resources. So much so that you don't have attentional resources to do other things. Mm. So, uh, so I guess the crucial thing here is that it, it just takes a lot of attention to keep the mind fragmented and that doesn't let you have attention to things that matter. Uh, and that really can lower your uh, your general your quality of living. So that is the, fr- the the process of fragmentation. And and uh, the questions that I'm asking are what what are the things that make the mind fragmented? What makes it the case that uh, that your mind uh, is fragmented or not fragmented? And here the the bad news is that uh, the cards are kind of stacked against us. And there's a lot of kind of systemic reasons why the human mind gets more and more fragmented. And of course, the big question is what can we do about it? So, so let me let me let me ask you this question before you give us the, the what we can do about it. Right. So 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 give me give me an example of, of of this, right? So when you were speaking, I was thinking about well, is denial an example of, of fragmentation? Is is self deception? Is it suppression? Is it repression? What, what does that look like? All right. So all of the all of these concepts are very much connected to fragmentation. I think so. So so cognitive dissonance is a good 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 uh, good example. For example, which I guess okay. is something that like what you mean by denial. So, um, so cognitive dissonance, you, you do something that, that does not fit 
your self-image. So uh, I don't know, you're you're at the airport and you really you're in a hurry. It's not not a very 2021 example, but whatever. Um, <laughs> and and you're and there's a there's a cab and you flag down a cab and there's this old lady trying to get in, but you're you know, I don't know you're faster and you get there. And then you move away. And uh, so what what are you gonna do? You you just did something pretty nasty. You stole a cab from an old lady. How are you gonna deal with this? Um, you could somehow make yourself believe that you didn't actually do anything nasty. You know, probably the old lady was not in a hurry. I was really in a hurry, so you know, I didn't do anything wrong. That's all mm-hmm. good. Uh, or you can somehow tell yourself that, uh, well, you know, no one is perfect. That that's who I am. I still cabs i'm just a selfish person um or and here's a third option you can just uh, you can you can just somehow exile this piece of information about what you just did to uh to a faraway friend and try to forget about it but the point is that you can try to forget about it you could you know crank up the smooth jazz on the in the cab and and uh and think about something else but that piece of information is going to be there and, and it's going to be part of your mind, even if it's far away. So you have to somehow do something about it to keep it, keep it away from yourself. Self-deception was the second thing that you were saying. And that's also a really important concept here. So we, are, we all are very much prone to self-deception, right? Because we all like to think of ourselves as, as, as great and, or at least better than average. And there's a lot of nice social psychology about how uh, people tend to rate themselves as better than average about pretty much everything. And it just can be true, right? It can be true for everyone that they're, right. that they're all better than average. And then, uh, but but of course, reality bites eventually, and and we, we kind of we face our mediocrity. But then, what 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 are you gonna do? Uh, again, uh, you could uh, just embrace your mediocrity, but that's just not the way we're set up psychologically. So we are again gonna try to somehow not attend to that or try to not uh, have that piece of information that tells us that we're mediocre inside in our minds. So try to somehow forget about it. But again, you can't forget about it. And that's why you have to keep these things far away from, from your self-image. I guess the whole point, the, the, the main point maybe is that we, we all try to kind of preserve a uh, relatively, you know, shiny and glossy self-image where we think of a polished self-image where we are the good guys and, uh, you know, nice people and that's just that's just not true even for like the nicest people that's just not going to be true because we're all fallible and also there's there's a lot, bunch of other reasons why why uh why that's not uh not maintainable and then so when when there's some some kind of information that's contradicting this then we're going to try to not incorporate that in the self-image but that means that you have to keep it far away from the self-image and that just takes a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And then, if you, if you if 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 the attention is tied down there, then you don't you're not going to have enough attention to to uh, to do other things. I, I want to connect this to two particular issues and and what might one might say two different domains. So let, let's first talk about temptations. A lot of people have perhaps yielded to temptation during this coronavirus pandemic. A lot of us have have been successful in in resisting and avoiding it. You're writing your work on this, and I'm going to quote you here, that it's a no-win situation once you have the temptation to do something. If you yield, it establishes a habit. If you don't yield, this could contribute to the fragmentation of your mind, end quote. Can, can you explain this? And, and more importantly, explain how what you were calling kind of fragmentation has to do with avoiding uh, a, a resistant temptation and, and what should we do with temptations given that information? 
Good. So, so that's, uh, I, I think of this as a kind of, as an important consequence of the whole idea of, of the fragmented mind. So, and it's kind of a big topic in social psychology, the whole self-control literature and what, what, uh, what does it mean to have, uh, to have self-control. But, but the, the, the gist is something that we, we encounter every day, really. I mean, this, this is a kind of a very crucial part of our everyday life. Uh, you know, today I was trying to work and it was not going well. And I don't know, I, I, uh, I thought that, uh, well, maybe I'll, uh, I'm just going to go and uh, go downstairs and have a snack instead. Is it going to solve my problem of, of having to finish something by a deadline? No, it's not. Uh, but I, I just did it anyway. So the idea of going downstairs and, and having, having a snack comes into my mind. And there's, uh, that w- what can you do then? Uh, you can resist the temptation or you can give in to the temptation. And what I want to say is that both of those options are, are wrong. So uh, they're just not, they're not, not a good option. But there's a hidden option that just someone not trying not to get tempted at all. And that is the only way I had. Now, that sound, I realize that, that sounds a little corny <laughs> uh, and kind of a little self, self-helpy. Or, I don't know. But in the, in the social psychology literature, there's this big debate about what is, what is self-control really about. And... Uh, and there's the two options are to resist temptations or to avoid temptations, and 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 that's kind of a it's not a, it's not a distinction that's kind of very clear in in everyday language, and in the uh, in the psychology literature they kind of they pretend that it is a clear um, clear distinction. So let me give you an example. If if you go to a bar again, not a very 2021 example, at least not here <laughs> in Europe. I, don't, I mean, maybe in California they already reopened the bars. Did they? Ah. Uh... Kind of, sort of. Oh, really? We probably don't want to go to one. No, here there's not been any of that stuff for a long time. Anyway, so you go to the bar and and you order, uh, you, you just, you know, you have three drinks and then and then the uh, and then the, uh, the the bartender gives you, uh, kind of asks you, so do you want a fourth one? Do you know that you, well, you know, that's just really not a good idea to have a fourth drink. I don't know, I have a, I get up, have to get up tomorrow early to teach or something. So what do you do at that point? So again, it seems like there's two options. One, you say, no, no, I'm going home. That's the resisting the temptation. The, the second option is to say, yeah, sure, give me a fourth drink. That's the giving in to the temptation. And it seems like those are the only options. But here is, a, here is the kind of the hidden option is to, is to just, uh, just not go to the bar at all or to, to get up after the first drink. So to not put yourself in the situation where you will get tempted. So let me kind of connect this back to the... Um, to the whole fragmentation thing. So the reason, one of the reasons, so I said, I, I made a big deal about this whole attentional resources are tied down and keeping the mind fragmented and you're not going to have to get mm-hmm. any attentional resources remaining for, uh, for anything. Now, one of the things that you don't get any kind of attentional resources if your mind is fragmented is exactly to resist temptation. So, and, uh, and there's, there's, a, there's a lot of nice experiments that, that show this. But there's a kind of a, uh, kind of a weird two-way interaction here. So, what, so first of all, fragmented mind leads to kind of an inability to resist temptation. But the inability to resi- resist temptation then leads to a fragmented mind. Because if you are, uh, if you, you know, if you can't resist the temptations of the fourth drink and stuff like that, again, you think of yourself as a kind of, uh, you know, someone who, who just does not get like sloppy drunk every night. But if you do once, mm-hmm. and, and if, if you just can't resist the temptation of the fourth drink, then you uh, then, then again, what do you do with this information about yourself? W- what you have to do is to, again, 
somehow try to keep it separate from your self-image and that kind of leads to further fragmentation. So you get this kind of vicious circularity between fragmentation and uh, the ability to resist temptation. But I'm curious here, is it, is it possible to avoid temptation? I, I, I mean, I, I, think, I think it is the case that it's possible to avoid lots of temptations. But just when we think we've been coronavirus pandemic, we've been in the house, so a lot of temptations that we would have if we go outside aren't there. But then we may find ourselves on social media and then we get tempted. Or we may find ourselves watching television and then we get tempted. So my worry is that as much as the recommendation is to avoid temptation, in some ways I wonder how much is that even possible to do it 100%. And maybe that's not, maybe I'm just suggesting that that's a high threshold and that's not the threshold you're suggesting that we should we should do. So so what do you say about, about people who says, well, it's impossible to avoid all temptation. Do you think this is even necessary to avoid it all? No, no. So I, I think you're exactly right. So and all, the whole thing of, oh, you should just, you know, you should just avoid temptation. That's I, I sound a little like like Nancy Reagan. I don't know whether you remember that. <laughs> just say no. Yeah, that's not that's really not what I'm trying to say. So. Uh, so first of all, uh, so I the reason why I was a little uh, sloppy when you were when you were asking me about the distinction between uh, resisting and avoiding is because I, I'm, you know, for presentational purposes, I'm trying to make this contrast as sharp as possible, but of course it's not that sharp, right? Well, is it avoiding temptation to uh, so to go back to the bar example? So if you if you if you kind of go into the bar deciding that well I'm gonna get up after two drinks, is that avoiding temptation or is it some? Are you actually putting yourself in the situation that you're going, that you're not gonna get tempted? If you or, or do you have to just somehow not go into the bar? Do you have to not go to the street that has the bar in and so on? And we actually, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of nice uh, nice results, nice uh, literature, empirical literature, on on how in um, in addicts, in, in recovering addicts, the stimulus that can trigger cravings is not just the stimulus that of the of the substance that they're craving. It's all kinds of stimuli that's related to that. So if you are uh, I don't know, if you're a drug addict, it's it's not just the or, or let's just go with gambling addiction. If you if you're um, if you have gambling addiction, it's not just uh, the you know the entrance of the casino that's going to be or a, or a, you know an image of a roulette table that's going to be a triggering stimulus. All kinds of things. I mean, it can be the song that you once heard in the casino. It can be your shirt that you once wore in the casino. And the, and the more and the stronger the addiction is, the further away this kind of network of of stimuli that can trigger the uh, the temptation uh, to again, uh, it go goes so it's um, in some very real sense it's not really possible to avoid tempting stimuli and for that reason I think what we have to ask is what what is it I mean I, I've, I've been throwing around this term temptation which frankly has, has these kind of weird <laughs> religious connotations and uh, you know I'm not sure if they're happy about it but but a te- temptation I guess is some is is a uh, kind of situation where there's a conflict between what I want and what I think of myself right. So uh, mm. on some very basic level, there's two ways in which you can uh, you can avoid this kind of temptation. You can you can put yourself in a situation where there is no temptation arising. One is to avoid the tempting stimuli, and I was trying to say that that's just not possible. And the other one is to kind of diminish the different the kind of the the distance between your desires and and uh, what you think of yourself. Right? If there is no conflict between what you want and who. What you think you are, then there's going to be less uh, less opportunity for temptation. And is this is this what you're pointing to? Is what you're describing as a defragmenting? 
Exactly. So, so now let me pull, pull this back to, to, to defragmenting. So, so I think one of the main reasons why the mind is, is fragmented is a kind of, is a, is a fixed self-image. And the reason why that leads to fragmentation is because the self changes all the time. And there's a lot of reasons to think that it changes all the time. Whereas our, if our self-image remains the same, then eventually, and often quite quickly, there's going to be a huge conflict between your self-image and yourself. And that is a conflict that, again, you have to hide from yourself. And that's just going to lead to, lead to fragmentation. Now, in the, in the context of, of, the, of the whole temptation stuff, again, if um, it seems like temptation, we can talk about temptation if what you want just doesn't match the way you think of yourself. And again, uh, there's two ways in which you can change this. One, one way is to just change your desires. Just don't want to do drugs. Again, just say no. Right? Uh, but that, again, I don't think that that's a feasible thing. I don't think that desires are the kind of thing, especially cravings, are the kind of things that can be changed very easily. And there's, again, a lot of empirical findings about that. On the other hand, one thing that you can change is, is how firm your self-image is, how much you're defining yourself in certain properties or certain traits. So if you have a more fluid or like self-image, if you let me just say, if you take yourself less seriously, then maybe there's going to be less conflict with desires. You're going to kind of beat yourself up less about uh, how your desires are different from who you think you are. I think this is to be a good segue to the political realm. So. It is said that we live in a polarized society, one of the most polarized in the recent years. And in the project that you worked on, you suggest that we can't fix this polarization without fixing what you've been calling throughout this interview, the fragmentation of individual minds. So what's the connection between fragmented minds and fragmented societies? And how do we go about fixing both. I mean, I, I think you've helped us figure out how to fix the, the fragmented minds. What impact does it make on fixing the fragmented societies? Yeah, so I, so I, I actually am pretty excited about that consequence of the whole fragmented mind business. But let me kind of uh, come to this topic from a distance. So, I, so first of all, I think that the whole fragmented mind idea has a lot of interesting implications for a lot of social issues that we care about. So let me just say about one is, is, is uh, implicit bias. So implicit biases, as we know, is um, kind of biased behavior that goes against your explicitly held beliefs. And uh, we talk about implicit bias in, uh, in, in the philosophical and psychological literature, especially towards uh, certain uh, racial and gender groups. So you uh, might behave differently towards different people with different skin color, although you think of yourself as the least racist person in the world, right? And there's been a big debate about uh, just how implicit is implicit bias, and it seems like it's not that implicit. So people mm. actually have a fairly good idea about when they behave differently towards different people with different skin colors. And, and I think that's actually, that's, again, that's an interesting, uh, that has an interesting connection with the fragmented mind, because, you know, so take the, you know, the paradigmatic example of you in an, in an elevator, and then you just somehow... There's two other people with different skin color, and then you, you're you're moving in a way that you're further away from one of them than from the other, right? That's a kind of uh, that's that's an example that comes up a lot in the implicit bias literature. Now, it seems like it's not the case that you're just completely unaware of this. I we are aware of this, and then you're you're thinking to yourself, oh wait, I'm uh, why, why am I? Why did I move here? I'm uh, I can't. It can't be that I'm uh, I'm I'm doing this because I'm racist. I'm the least racist person in the world. So what? So what's going on? Um, 
and then whatever kind of bad thoughts that I have about myself that maybe I am not as uh, colorblind as I thought I was is going to again have to be kind of fragmented away. So I think that there's a lot of uh, interesting uh, interactions between fragmentation and social issues. But what I'm kind of really quite excited about uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a, as an application of the fragmented mind idea to, to society. And here the general idea is um, maybe, just maybe, recognizing what the whole fragmented mind idea means can actually help us make the society a little less fragmented. And that's going to be a little kind of, uh, in a kind of indirect way. So one, one thing about, um, one, one important thing about fragmented mind is that we're, uh, when, we, when we talk to like-minded people, so people who we consider ourselves to be in the same kind of, same political camp, let's say, it, it does happen quite often that we just don't agree with the orthodoxies, right? So, uh, so I know that, you know, people who are uh, in my kind of group, they should think this and this and this and this, but I, I just don't. And, and I, you know, I can say that I do, but I don't. Again, this is going to create some form of, you know, cognitive dissonance, if you want to say that. Some, some piece of information that I want to, that I will kind of feel compelled to, again, exile in faraway fragments in my mind. So, uh, so I don't know, let's suppose that I'm hanging out with a, with a lot of um, lefties, and, uh, and, they, and I agree with most of their values, but they're all uh, uh, Bernie supporters, and I like Elizabeth Warren. And I feel that, ooh, well, well, I feel I should like Bernie, but I'm, uh, I'm still some, I, I just, I, I feel like Elizabeth Warren is more more my thing. There's, there's a bit of tension there, right? I feel that there's a, some kind of expectation mm. on me from in this kind of social group to do something, but I just don't, I, I, I don't work that way. So this is something that, again, you have to somehow put away in a faraway fragment. Now, if you recognize that that's how individuals work everywhere on all ends of the political spectrum, then I guess we can recognize that everyone's mind is this kind of hodgepodge of ideas, some of which you can agree with, some of which you can't agree with. So it's not the case. So you can, you can still disagree with the general ideology of the opposite end of the spectrum, of the political spectrum. But the actual individuals in the, at, the, at the other end of the political spectrum are just as much of a mix and match of ideas as you are. And you might have a lot of ideas in common with these people. So that's the somewhat over-optimistic uh, take on how fragmented minds lead to fragmented societies and consequently then kind of defragmenting the mind can also maybe somehow contribute to defragmenting the society. Let me ask you this. So, so someone might say, well, it seems as if you're, you're offering an individual solution to what some may say is, is are structural problems. Is, is that your attempt or are you st- still, no matter what the interpretation, um, you think there's still room for, for kind of individual kind of agency or, or change and that, that can affect a larger population but doesn't substitute for structural? I guess another way of asking the question, what is, what is, the, what is the extent of this fixing <laughs> of the fragmented minds that you, that you suggest can, can occur? Right, right. So, so this is definitely not, in, in no way is this a substitute to structural change and, and we, we sorely need some serious structural change. This is kind of a, I mean, what, what in, a, in the film kind of overselling this idea, but so in, in, the, in the most, in the best case scenario, all that what I'm trying to say is going to achieve is that 
maybe we can actually get along with uh, right. people on the other end of this political spectrum in spite of our differences with them. Uh, or mm -hmm. we can somehow treat them as human beings, just like ourselves, without, uh, you know, just dis dismissing them as complete nut jobs. That's the, that's the best I can offer, I'm afraid. But, but, I, but I think that uh, that's something, and that, that could be, I mean, let me put it this way, without this way of um, thinking about the other end of the political spectrum, I'm not sure that any kind of structural political structural change is going to achieve much either so i think this 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 might be a, a more in, important step than uh, than it sounds according to the internet you have served as a film critic and also have sat on several juries for major film festivals. I wish I had the opportunity to do that. And another conversation, I asked you what that was like. But what would you say was the film that convinced you that cinema was an art form? Yeah, so I like this kind of um, old French slash Italian. So, so I guess if I had to say like the, what's the, what was the one film, that must have been some, I was about... 16 and I saw this uh, early Antonioni film again very black and white where I just and mm -hmm. I, I'm not even sure why why I watched it I think it must have been the girl I was with uh, but and, <laughs> and I was just I was just completely blown away that it's uh, you know every image was like a painting and so that's uh, that's where I, I kind of decided that that I really I am really interested in film I don't know whether you remember that that was a while ago. There was this this weird ad for I think for Sundance Channel in the ninth in the early two thousands, where there was this uh, directing class in the uh, at some kind of film school, and there's this the teacher was this old dude with a Russian accent or French accent, some kind of foreign accent, and he was asking what is cinematic, and then <laughs> one, one of the one of the students said what sunsets are cinematic. And I said oh what kind of Hollywood, Hollywood bullshit is this? No way. And then another one, the other student said, dead tree, bad weather. And he said, yes, exactly. That's what's cinematic. So I used to, so, mm -hmm. I, so I like to say that I like this kind of dead tree, bad weather film. In the old days, these films were, um, I mean, in the 60s, as you said, and, and they were kind of Italian and French. But in Europe, they don't make films like this anymore. And in the US, very few films. So these days, actually, more of these films are made in, uh, in Iran, in Latin mm -hmm. America, in Korea in India. So um, so when I was on the um, festival circuit, as we called it, I was kind of specializing in third world cinema. And that was, uh, that was a really uh, great experience. Do you have a favorite director? A living director or? Uh, it can be, you know, living or, or, or deceased. I, know, I like, I like Abbas Kiarostami. He's, he, he died recently, but he was a great director from Iran. And, and, and why? I guess the same kind of thing as I said about Antonioni. It's just it's, uh, every single image is uh, like a painting, and um, just really like looking at these films. But I don't I don't watch as many films as I as I used to. Are there any any works of art that's gotten you through this pandemic that you might want to recommend to to us? Huh. Well, I, uh, your 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 audience is gonna think that I'm a terrible snob, but uh, <laughs> I I read. Uh, I read Ulysses. I read it when I was a teenager, and, and in retrospect, I didn't understand anything from it. So don't mm -hmm. read Ulysses when you're a teenager, because it's a waste of time. <laughs> Remember, you're, you know, you're going to read it later. It's, it's make no sense. And, and yeah, it was pretty awesome, i got to say, for, for the second time. It's definitely worth the uh, 800 pages, the, the effort that it takes to, to read the 800 pages. 
and say thank you so much for this conversation i i learned a lot and i'm looking so forward uh, to the book by tracks in the future well thank you so much and uh, and thanks for your great questions for more access to the unmute podcast subscribe on itunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co there you can get more information about our guests participate in giveaways as well as learn more about people books and concepts mentioned in today's episode until next time remember that your silence will not protect you listen think speak The world will be different as a result.